And let me invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're reading verses 2 through 12. Uh, You'll find that printed uh, in the bulletin packet, or uh, you may have brought uh, your own copy of the Bible. We're not uh, necessarily following all the section breaks that are there, printed there in our translation, but uh, talked about that before, not going to bore you with it uh, again this morning. Uh, this past week, a friend asked me to look at a book proposal that he was, uh, he's planning to send to an academic publisher. It's a book on reading the Old Testament prophets, and uh, he said that the main emphasis of this book is going to be the concept that God speaks to his people through the prophets. That would really be the central idea that this book is designed around, uh, God speaking to his people through the prophets. And Well, that's a fine idea, and I agree with that, as I'm sure all of you do as well. As I was reading this proposal that uh, he's writing up, uh, it reminded me of the fact that so many academic biblical scholars, they adopt a purely secular approach to the Bible, and so they don't read the prophets or really any other part of the Bible that way, as if God is actually speaking to his people. They may read the Bible as interesting historical information or as interesting examples of ancient poetry or ancient storytelling, but the one thing they don't read it as is as a message from God to his people. And so I think my friend is feeling inspired to write this book precisely because many of the scholars of the Bible in the universities and colleges and even in a number of seminaries they kind of rule out from the start the possibility of the supernatural, and they don't approach the Bible as something spoken by God. Of course, if you, if you take that approach, you, you're missing the whole point. Uh, the whole Bible is a message spoken by God, not just the prophets, but uh, the law, the songs, Uh, the Gospels, everything, it's all spoken by God. Well, let's not make that mistake as we read from Ecclesiastes this morning. Let's uh, read the Bible as it was intended to be read, as the Word of God, as the voice of God speaking to His people, speaking to His people today, just as He spoke to them however many centuries or millennia ago when, say, the book of Ecclesiastes was first written. It's a message, it's God speaking to us today, just as it was a couple of thousand years ago. Let's turn to our reading, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, reading verses 2 through 12. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread in joy, 
And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Please pray with me as we ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as uh, so often we find in reading this uh, particular book of the Bible, there are things that are uh, puzzling, maybe even uh, shocking or uncomfortable to read. And yet, Lord, this is your voice speaking to us. Uh, Lord, we know that at times uh, we need to be made uncomfortable. We pray that you would do it uh, in all the right ways this morning. Uh, Make us uncomfortable and then give us the comfort of your gospel. Uh, Give us hope even as we uh, read these uh, dark and at times mysterious uh, sayings. Grant us wisdom from your word uh, this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's said that the gravestone of the uh, comedian and the vaudeville performer W.C. Fields is inscribed with the epitaph, All things considered, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Which is a backhanded insult to Philadelphia, uh, of course, because it makes it sound like being in Philadelphia is only slightly better than being dead and in the grave. Well, I did a little checking this week. It turns out that's an urban legend. That's not actually on W.C. Fields' uh, gravestone. Uh, But then it got me interested in just this concept, and it turns out there are a number of famous comedians and Hollywood personalities who do have very light-hearted gravestones. The performer Merv Griffin, of an earlier generation, uh, he later became a, he was a performer, became a television host. He has a gravestone which says, I will not be right back after this message. Because as a TV host, he was always announcing commercial breaks and, you know, stay tuned, we'll be right back. Um, Well, he's not coming back after this one. Of course, there's Rodney Dangerfield, the well-known funny man who was always complaining he got no respect, and he was always making self-deprecating jokes. So in one of his routines, he complained, I get no respect. I bought a cemetery plot. The guy said, there goes the neighborhood. Get it? His presence in the grave lowers the value of every other corpse's resting place. So, well, sure enough, uh, Dangerfield's gravestone actually reads, There goes the neighborhood. There's also Mel Blanc. Uh, You know him as the voice of all the Looney Tune characters, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Foghorn, Leghorn, and so on. His gravestone takes its inspiration from one of the catchphrases of the character Porky Pig, and it says... That's all, folks. 
So we're talking about the final resting place of the dead here, uh, something pretty serious and pretty solemn, but these famous comedians and entertainers, they decided to put a lighthearted spin on it. But not everybody takes that uh, so lightly. Uh, there's Edgar Allan Poe, you know, the guy who wrote all those creepy, macabre stories like The Telltale Heart and The Pit and the Pendulum and The Fall of the House of Usher. His gravestone has that somber line from really his most famous poem, The Raven. His gravestone reads, Quoth the raven, nevermore. Instead of making light of death, uh, he's taking it very seriously, as you would probably expect from Edgar Allan Poe. And in fact, it's been more common in arts and in literature to take death seriously and uh, to make use of what's called the memento mori theme. That's part of today's sermon title, if you look at it in the bulletin. That's Latin uh, for basically it's saying, remember your death, remember your mortality. Don't forget that you're going to die someday. And if you look at older artworks, you'll see uh, that it was very common for an artist to paint somewhere in the picture a skull. You know, maybe it's on the shelf in the background. Maybe it's just this faint image kind of shadowy off in the corner. Or maybe it's something very prominent. It might be in the center of the painting, you know, on the table that everybody's gathered around. Uh, in any event, they would put these skulls in their pictures uh, to make you remember your dying. Remember that you're mortal. And apparently, scholars or academics during the Renaissance era, they kept actual skulls on their desks to serve as a reminder of their mortality. <laughs> on their desks. Memento mori. Remember your dying. And so maybe it seems a little bit morbid, a little extreme. Maybe it seems extreme to be decorating our workspaces and our dinner tables with skulls and things. But it's definitely also an extreme to, to put a joke on your gravestone as well. There goes the neighborhood. That doesn't really seem to be the right place for a joke, does it? It seems too casual, too lighthearted. G.K. Chesterton once said that having taken the frivolous things seriously, we naturally take the serious things frivolously. So spot on. Uh, our culture takes certain things way too seriously. You know, uh, comedians, they used to be able to point out the humor of the differences between the sexes or between different cultures even, and everybody used to be able to enjoy a good laugh and that was it. But now those things are highly sensitive. So, for example, I was told by someone who saw this that back in the day there was a deli on Gervais Street that once advertised that they had bread so French it surrenders. Now that's clever, that's funny, but you probably couldn't do that anymore without it creating some kind of public outcry. So, you know, we take the frivolous things like, you know, jokes about French bread. We take those seriously, as G.K. Chesterton said. And so we naturally take the serious things frivolously. Things that actually are serious matters like death and dying, well, we start joking around about that. 
So our passage today, it is a kind of memento mori passage. It's reminding you that you are dying. You will die someday. And it wants you to have a balanced perspective on that, not making light of it, you know, as if it's this ha-ha comical thing, but also not getting dark and kind of creepily obsessed with it, like, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. There's a series of lessons here in this passage about our mortality, along with a very important application. Uh, The lessons here are actually very obvious ones, so I can go over them very briefly. Uh, We'll really be very quick about these. The first lesson has to do with the predictability of death, uh, which is that it's inevitable. You know with certainty that it's going to happen find that in verse 2. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. That same event is the event of death. Verse 3, there's an evil that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Verse 5, for the living know, here we go, that they will die. I think this point is so obvious in the text, I don't need to belabor it. Ecclesiastes has made this point earlier, in fact. Everyone dies. Everyone is mortal. It's unavoidable. So from that perspective, it's totally predictable, 100% guaranteed you will die. So that's the first lesson, the predictability of death, the inevitability of death. Along with that is a second lesson, which has to do with the unpredictability of death, uh, because the fact is you don't know when it's coming. It doesn't usually come at a convenient time either. Yeah, death is inconvenient. It comes at an inconvenient, unexpected time. And you find that in verses 11 and 12, if you look at them again. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. It's talking about dying. Now, uh, by this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've been tracking with the thought all the way through, we know that when we read in verse 11 there, time and chance happen to all people. It's not saying that life is just this random series of events. Ecclesiastes has been very clear that God has a purpose in all things. He has a plan. Nothing is random. Verse 11 is just saying that you don't have the ability to forecast the future. You can make all the plans you want. They won't necessarily work out. I mean, how often have your plans worked out? 50% of the time? 75% of the time? 25% of the time? Man proposes, God disposes, as they say. You know, make your plans, that's fine. But realize that God will interrupt them. He will overrule them all the time to accomplish his plan, in his timing. So that's what that phrase means in verse 11. Time and chance happen to them all. It's not truly random, but from our perspective, 
We can't predict them. And verse 12, I think, is even more explicit about it. Man does not know his time. Speaking of the time of his death. When it happens, it's like an animal caught suddenly in a snare at an evil time, our text says. That means it's at an unfortunate time. It's at an inconvenient time. I mean, it's not like we ever look at our calendars and our planners and think, you know, this would actually be a very good week for me to die. Who says that? Nobody says that. The timing of death is unpredictable, and it's going to be inconvenient. So that's the second lesson. Uh, Again, that's very clear. Moving on to the third lesson. third lesson here has to do with the superiority of life over death. Death is inferior to life, even if it's inevitable. Life is still superior to it. And even if your life isn't necessarily the easiest and the greatest, it's better to be alive than dead. That's verses 4 and 5. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. you got to know... It's hard for us to appreciate this, but dogs were nasty, mangy scavengers in ancient Judea. People did not keep them as nice house pets, you know, clean, friendly. We're not talking corgis and poodles here. Dogs would have been viewed pretty much like hyenas and coyotes and that sort of thing. So, would you rather be a dog than a lion? Uh, I mean... Lion, of course. (laughs) Lions are powerful, they're majestic, they're beautiful, they're fearsome, and all that stuff. Of course I would rather be a lion than a dog. Unless the lion is dead. (laughs) Game changer. Better to be a dog that's alive than a lion that's dead. Ecclesiastes is being very pro-life here with this colorful little proverb in verse 4. It's saying that life is absolutely, objectively superior to death. And it's reaffirming the biblical message that the Lord, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, as Jesus says. You know, there were plenty of gods of death in ancient cultures. The Lord is their enemy. He hates them because the Lord is pro-life. One reason why the Christian church needs to be pro-life. Church doesn't align with a a particular political party, but it should align with a pro-life policy. This is a foundational issue. It's not just one of those desirable things. It needs to be viewed as essential. Life is vastly superior to death. There's no comparison. Well, death, it's a serious reality, and we need to have a balanced perspective on it. And so there we have three very quick, pretty obvious lessons about death in our text. It's predictable in that it's inevitable. It's unpredictable in terms of its timing or when it happens. And death is clearly inferior to life. So we get those uh, three important theological lessons there. And then our text, it makes this application as it's urging us to, you know, remember, the, remember your death, remember your dying, 
Remember that you're mortal. Here's where Ecclesiastes, it throws this kind of curveball at us. Because you read all this, you read these lessons, and you think, well, I guess, you know, those folks from the Renaissance were maybe right then to keep a skull on their desk to remind them of this serious reality or, you know, paint them, sculpt them, carve them into their artwork. So, you know, I guess I need to get a little more serious about being mortal and uh, my mortality. That's probably what most of us are expecting at this point. But then the preacher throws us this curveball, starting in verse 7, and he tells us to live it up and enjoy life. Look at verses 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Verse 10 goes on. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Enjoy your work, in other words. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going, wait, what? What? You just told us that we're going to die, that it's inevitable, and we don't know when that's going to be. It's going to take us by surprise. It's going to take us inconveniently. You told us that death is bad, clearly inferior to life. And now you just kind of turn around and tell us that, you know, let's enjoy life by eating bread and drinking wine with joy and wearing nice clothes, making ourselves look good, you know, putting oil in our heads and so on, and to enjoy the pleasure of marriage. And I wasn't really expecting that as the application at this point. Ecclesiastes very definitely put those verses there a little bit for some shock effect on us, to surprise us. Because, you know, you might have thought that it was going to tell you that, hey, you're going to die someday unexpectedly, so you better get serious about living the Christian life. So, you know, go do some praying and go read some Bible and then go do some good works, you know, feed the hungry and visit the sick and teach a Sunday school class and start an evangelistic Bible study or back in the day would have been, you know, get thee to a nunnery, as Hamlet might have said. Go become a nun and really be serious about your Christian life. No, that's not what he says at all. Ecclesiastes is clearly telling us don't become monks and nuns and, you know, to get really serious about your faith. Instead, it says, no, go get married and take joy in that, and go order a good meal, and a good glass of wine to go with it, and go buy yourself a new outfit to wear. And Instead of putting oil on your head, you know, get a pedicure if you're into that sort of thing. And don't quit your job to become a missionary in Timbuktu. If your hand has found something to do, if you've developed skills in a particular vocation and you enjoy it, then just keep working at that, enjoying that, and doing it for the glory of God. What we have there in verses 7 through 10 are really what theologians call the Lord's creation ordinances. These were things that the Lord ordained or he commanded at the creation, before the fall, before there was sin in the world, before there was anything bad. These are things that were good, They've always been good, perfectly good, and holy. And even after the fall, they're still intended to be wonderful blessings for God's people. 
even if sin you know, messes things up and throws a wrench into them uh, in different ways. You know, at the creation, the Lord told Adam he could enjoy the food of every tree in the garden, right, except for just one, you know, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But, you know, okay, one single measly exception. With that one exception, Adam and Eve could enjoy any kind of food and drink that they could create out of all the bounty of the Garden of Eden. And the Lord charged Adam to work and to care for the garden, really to cultivate it and extend it outwards so that it cultivated the rest of the world, so the whole world became a garden. And he charged Adam to name and to rule over the creatures he had made. Adam had work to do. His hands had plenty to do. And he would have loved doing it, even if it got sweaty and dirty and needed to take a bath at the end of the day. There's a satisfaction that comes to anyone who works hard and works well and wisely with skill at something that they enjoy, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the garage, the wood shop, whether it's in the home, educating children, gardening, baking, making music, reading books, whatever. There's, there's a joy that comes with a job well done. So in the garden, Adam and Eve, they got to enjoy, enjoy all sorts of food and drink. They got to enjoy working in different capacities. And of course, they got to enjoy one another sexually, relationally, as spouses and as companions. These were all blessings given to Adam and Eve before the fall. They were creation ordinances. And that's what Ecclesiastes is picking up on here. And it's telling people, enjoy this stuff. In verses 7 through 10, it's telling people, live it up. That's serious advice. It's not a joke. It's not irony. It's telling us to really enjoy these things. Now, I'd kind of like to just stop right there and say, go and do likewise. Um, Because that's really the main point of Ecclesiastes. There is a question that I think we need to spend a little time on because it can, depending on who you are, if you're like me, these are these questions that can bother you from time to time. Basically, a question that can come up here is, how is what I'm saying here, or how is what Ecclesiastes is saying, how is it any different from what some secularist, some non-Christian materialist, uh, some hedonist might say? Because really, lots of different people Lots of non-Christians might say something very similar. You know, going to die anyway, so you might as well live it up. How is this sermon any different from that point of view? Uh, Am I basically telling you the same thing that any secularist, any hedonist might say in terms of enjoying life as much as you can while you can? There's an important theological difference, and it's this. The sort of thing that Ecclesiastes is saying, it really only makes sense when you believe in a future physical resurrection of the dead. What you think happens after death makes all the difference here. What comes next? You die and then what? Your answer to that question 
is going to affect how you seek to enjoy life and how you go about trying to live it up right now. You know, a lot of people take the uh, all dogs go to heaven sort of approach to what comes next. <laughs> Never saw the movie, but the title tells us everything. You know, er- the idea is that everybody gets a free pass to heaven. Except, you know, maybe the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world. Uh, you know, really, really nasty, bad people like that. Okay, they maybe don't go to heaven. But, you know, for everybody else, it's all kind of vague and undefined. I mean, what's this heaven like? And also, what's the cutoff line for who's in and who's out? You know, how much bad stuff can you do and still get into heaven? You know, how many violent crimes can you commit and how many violent crimes will get you excluded? Or you know, can you be a corrupt politician from the other party and still get in? Is it only the violent dictators who get excluded? Yeah, there's these questions. I think more people will just say kind of forthrightly that there's just nothing there after you die. You're just asleep or unconscious for the rest of time. And you can see the attraction to that point of view. You know, the, the all dogs go to heaven approach, it just seems too much like wishful thinking for most of us. But nobody likes the idea that there might be, you know, some conscious suffering in some next life for people who've done evil, at least for most of us. Um, and so people would want to say that, well, you know, you, can, you should enjoy this life while you can because someday you're basically just snuffed out of existence. You'll fall asleep forever and there's no more chance to enjoy things then. You know, really, the idea that there's, there's nothing after this life, that's nothing more than a guess. A lot of people say it, but they're just guessing. I think about it. Even if someone dies and it is just sort of eternal unconsciousness, how in the world would any of us know that for certain? Has it been revealed by some god or some angel or some spiritual messenger? Has somebody come back from this eternal sleep to report on what they've experienced? I know a lot of people who who believe this. You know, they believe that when we die, we just sleep for eternity. It's just a guess. And maybe it sounds more comforting than some of the alternatives, but how would anyone know? Of course, living in fear of death, as many people do, that's awful. That's terrible. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, it speaks about Jesus delivering those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, being afraid of dying, it's very common and it's very awful. It is like slavery. It's torture for people who live with that mindset. People respond in these uh, extreme ways to death, you know. Some people get very fatalistic, gloom and doom. Uh, they have no hope about what comes next. You know, there's Edgar Allan Poe uh, asking this mysterious raven if he'll ever again see and embrace his beloved Lenore, now deceased. Quoth the raven, nevermore. In other words, don't get your hopes up about seeing her, buddy, because she gone. But there's also the extreme response of ignoring death or making light of it. 
You know, <laughs> date myself here. The rock group The Who once sang, very brash, I hope I die before I get old. You know, they're old now. <laughs> Uh, but many have that attitude that, you know, if this life is your only chance, well, grab as much pleasure as you can. Yeah, that's no way to live either. It's, I'm sure it's fun for a while, but eventually that gets empty. If you believe in a resurrection, if you believe in a resurrection age, a regeneration, a renewal of the world, then things are different. Because if you think that there will be a new heavens and a new earth after this one, you enjoy things differently. For the Christian, it means that this life is not your only opportunity to experience joy and pleasure and blessing. Psalm 16, verse 11. I never get tired of quoting this one. It says, You make known to me the path of life, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Philippians chapter 1. Seth preached on it a few weeks ago. Paul says that from one perspective, he wanted to depart this life and be with Christ, which is better by far. There are these tremendous pleasures and joys in store for God's people in glory, um, both in this age, but also in the one to come. What all this means is that, you know, we can, we can know our limits in this life. We can enjoy the blessings that God gives us that are within those limits that, without ever feeling constricted by them. There are pleasures at the Lord's right hand in this age and also in the age to come forevermore. Not nevermore, as the raven might say. Let me put it a little more theologically. Our enjoyment of God's good gifts now is almost, we could say, sacramental. It previews, it foreshadows the enjoyment of eternal pleasures in a physically remade heaven and earth. As God's children... We always need to be ready and willing to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And we always need to be ready to remain here and to labor for the kingdom of God and also to enjoy the blessings of this life, the things that Ecclesiastes speaks of here. You know, for so many people, enjoying the pleasures of this life, it points them to this world. For the Christian, it should point them to the world to come. It should increase our appetite for eternal pleasures, for the fullness of joy in the Lord's presence. C.S. Lewis put it so well uh, in famous sermon he once preached, The Weight of Glory. He said this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Ecclesiastes wants you to develop a taste for what are, truly are the finer things. 
the finest things in life, in this life and in the one to come. And so when we enjoy God's blessings now, and he does give us blessings now, and we gratefully acknowledge that they're from him, they, they work in us an even greater weight of eternal glory. That's their point. Preacher summed it up so simply back in chapter 8, verse 15, where he said, And I commend joy. Friends, pursue true joy in this life. Let's live it up. Let's enjoy life the way the Lord wants us to. And may that develop in us even more of an appetite for the joys of the world to come. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that we might uh, be less satisfied with uh, just the lesser things, the things, the, the trinkets that often fascinate us. Lord, may our desires uh, for the eternal pleasures uh, of your kingdom, may that grow stronger in us. May we get a clearer uh, grasp of them, a clearer taste of them, even as we enjoy your blessings now uh, in relationships, in uh, the gifts of food and drink and uh, enjoyable work. Uh, Lord, may those things uh, not only be a joy to us now, but may they increase our appetite to have the greater joys of your eternal kingdom. Lord, uh, we pray that you would just change our whole mindset, change our priorities and grant us a desire to pursue after you. Ultimately, Lord, that's what we want, is to be united with you in glory face-to-face -face as the scriptures describe. Lord, work that in us and go with us as we work and play during the week. May all things be done to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.